Most of us know that sugar can wreak havoc on adult bodies, but few realize how uniquely harmful it is to the growing livers, hearts, and brains of children. And the damage can begin early in life. In his research on the effects of sugar on kids' present and future health, USC Professor of Pediatrics and Program Director for Diabetes and Obesity at Children's Hospital Los Angeles, Michael Goran, has found that too much sugar doesn't just cause childhood obesity, it can cause health issues in kids who are not overweight, including fatty liver disease, prediabetes, and elevated risk for eventual heart disease. And it is a likely culprit in the behavioral, emotional, and learning problems that many children struggle with every day. In a groundbreaking study, Dr. Garan's team conducted a detailed analysis of the sugary products that kids love and found that these yogurts, cereals, sodas, and juices often had more sugar than advertised and also contained different types of sugar than were being disclosed. Children today are not just consuming more sugar than ever, but they are consuming sugars that are particularly harmful to them, and their parents most likely don't even know it. The news is dire, but there is also plenty of hope. We can prevent, address, and even, in many cases, reverse the effects of too much sugar. In this guide to sugar-proof kids, Dr. Garan and co-author Dr. Emily Ventura, an expert in nutrition education and recipe development, bust myths about the various types of sugar and sweeteners, help families identify sneaky sources of sugar in their diets, and suggest realistic, family-based solutions to reduced sugar consumption and therefore protect our kids. Make sure you stick around to the end of this podcast where we will be talking about two challenges that you can find in the book Sugar Proof. Welcome to A Healthy Bite. You're one nibble closer to a more satisfying way of life, a healthier you, and bite-sized bits of healthy motivation. Now let's dig in on the dish with Rebecca Huff. I'm super excited about this podcast episode today because this is one of my hot topics and I am here with the authors of the book Sugar Proof and it's all about the hidden dangers of sugar that are putting your child's health at risk and what you can do about it. And so I'm here with Michael Goran and Emily Ventura, the authors of the book. And before we get started, um, can you just take turns telling me a little bit about yourselves? Hi, Rebecca. Thank you so much for having us on and for all your great work in this, in this field. We've been doing this a long time, so thank you so much. I'm Michael Gore, and I'm a professor of pediatrics at the Children's Hospital in Los Angeles, which is also affiliated with the University of Southern California. I've been in that position for over 20 years. I've been at the forefront of research in childhood nutrition for almost 30 years, and over the last 10 years, we've been focused pretty heavily on the role of dietary sugar in children's health. And over the last few years, decided it was about time to put all that work together and all of our strategies together that we've been using in our research and pull it all into one place and uh, create this book, Sugar Proof, and reached out to Emily. Emily was a former graduate student who worked with me many years ago, but we've stayed in touch and we teamed up on sugar proof. Nice. Thanks so much for having us today, Rebecca. 
It's really a pleasure. And I've been enjoying your podcast. Um, as Michael mentioned, I'm a nutrition educator. I'm also a mom to two boys, ages five and eight. And I've worked for a number of years in different settings, including in the community and in research when I was working for Michael in his lab. And um, that's how this collaboration started, as he mentioned. Um, but it's been a passion of mine for so long. And especially now that I'm a mom, I think I understand the issues on an even deeper level. And you know, I've spent a lot of time thinking about these things, and it's great to just have the chance to um, collaborate with Michael and put everything together in one place to share with other parents and caregivers of kids. That's awesome. So I see, I think I can guess a little bit of your motivation, Emily, for writing this book is one, when you have kids, you really start to think about the foods you eat. But can you um, tell me a little bit more about what motivated you both to write this book? Yeah, for me, well, I'm a parent too. I have two teenage kids, so um, 18 and almost 15. So uh, but um, that was part of it. But for me, it was mostly the research. We just kept bumping into research findings. We weren't specifically at first looking to examine sugar, but we we're just looking at diet in general. But in many cases, we kept coming up against dietary sugar, kept becoming the dietary uh, uh, factor that we found to be related to multiple outcomes uh, in children of all ages, including gestational exposure. And our, you know, we, this is something that's been a major focus of my research, like I mentioned, for, for over 10 years or more. And well, I'm sure we'll get into the details as we talk more, but this, the, there were several aha moments that just made it highly uh, important for me uh, to pull all this together. I felt it was important to get the message out. Research often gets buried. But we know that there's families and kids and parents dealing with this issue everywhere. And I wanted to bring it all together, not just from the research. So A, wanted to uh, transmit the research in a very digestible way. And second, uh, to provide solutions, simple family-based solutions, because a lot of the dietary-based books that are out there are focused on individuals. Uh, who, who are very set, fixed diets that aren't going to work for families. Mm -hmm. So we wanted to come up with something that was much more versatile with, with, with the primary aim of reducing sugar, but strategies that would work for families that would be practical and sustainable because we all know on this call, I'm sure many of you readers know, families have multiple issues. Um, and multiple dietary preferences, multiple taste preferences, multiple health issues. And so it was important for us to kind of have a very versatile, flexible program. It's not a diet per se, it's a, it's a collection of strategies and tips to s reduce sugar. Mm -hmm. I think something also that's, that's been really important for us is talking about um, informing families about the risks of an overly sweet diet, but also taking a step back and looking at the larger perspective of thinking that it's not just about reducing sugar, it's also about what you're adding in to your um, family's diet to displace that. So um, I've been interested in edible education for a really long time, um, starting when I did an internship um, at the beginning of my career at the Edible Schoolyard in Berkeley. 
and just seeing, you know, the effects of having kids growing their own food and harvesting it and bringing it into the kitchen and really having a hands-on experience with healthy food. And so we incorporate that into our book as well. And we talk about lots of different ways to get kids um, not only more aware of sugar and more able to self-regulate, but also more interested in healthy foods and resetting their palates and expanding their tastes and um, learning some life skills that set them up to be healthy eaters for the long run. Um, and included with that are 39 recipes that we developed that are easy and flexible and work with different dietary preferences and needs and simple enough that you can do them with your kids as well. Yeah, I had my daughter make your chocolate milk to see if she would like it. And she did like oh, it. Very much. So that was cool. So I'm glad that you included some recipes in the book. That is fabulous. I think uh, one of the questions that I get asked probably most often about kids and sugar is like, how do I, because a lot of people start thinking about cutting back on sugar once their children are a little bit older or once they start seeing kind of those effects of sugar, you know, they don't really think about it a lot. You know, it's not across the board, but I think a lot of parents uh, start to realize later, Oh my goodness, my child has a sweet tooth. What am I going to do? Um, so the how to in your book, I found very useful. And I think a lot of people in this community will find it very useful as far as like, moving that transition from having your kid eating a lot of sugar, because I think a lot of parents don't actually realize how much sugar their kids are consuming. Um, can you tell us a little bit about that? Like what's the average water kids consuming? Yeah, well, across age and just, just to kind of quickly respond to that. So, cause we get this question a lot too, and it's never too late and it's never too early to, start reducing sugar, right. right? I mean, we if you can start early, that's great, but if your kids are five or six, it's not, or even 15, it's it's also not too late. So there's always room to to cut back on sugar and there's gonna be benefits wherever you are in that, that spectrum. But um, in terms of averages, I mean, it varies tremendously across the population, but let's just say that Kids and adults are eating well beyond the health recommendations for sugar and particularly added sugars, which is sugars added to food. And the health recommendations for that are 10% of total calories, um, which for a child would vary depending on how old you were. But if, if your child's, let's say, five and they're consuming, let's say, 1,000 calories per day, that's 100 calories of added sugar which is about 25 grams of added sugar and and you can get that from a glass of apple juice uh, or a couple of bowls of cereal so most kids are probably well beyond the health recommendations and in fact the new dietary recommendations that we're waiting to hear about will go one step further um, they haven't been formally announced yet but the scientific committee recommended 5% of daily calories from added sugar. And certainly most kids and adults are well beyond that. And for kids or babies between zero and two years of age, they're gonna recommend zero added sugars between zero and two years of age, which is a very big move. And certainly that's going to have big implications because most zero to two year olds are already getting a lot of added sugar from a variety of different sources. 80% of foods 
targeted to children, 80% have added sugar. Right. It's actually, that's one of the things that I try to help parents with when they start transitioning like this is it's not just the things that look like sugar. It's not just the desserts. It's also all of these hidden sugars. And you talk about that in your book and help yeah. parents learn to recognize where those hidden sugars are and the craziest things like pizza um, that you mentioned in your book. Like a lot of people don't realize that their sugar, you know, maybe in the dough, in the sauce. So, you know, we have to start taking a look at all of, all of those things in the big picture. But um, as for, like kind of maybe taking a step back, but what are the implications of this excessive amount of sugar that we are consuming as a society, but in particular children? Yeah, and those those can can affect children's bodies literally from head to toe, um, and those could be physical manifestations, chronic diseases, or health behavioral um, temperament and focus, um, le learning ability. Uh, so some of the, and some of those effects will be uh, kind of long term chronic conditions that wouldn't be manifested in childhood. So you're probably not gonna be worried about your children having diabetes or fatty liver disease or heart disease, although it does indeed happen rarely, but increasingly so. But it's important to know that the process uh, for that development of those chronic conditions is lifelong mm -hmm. and begins actually in utero and during childhood. So the more exposure you have to sugar as a child, the greater risk you're putting yourself on to, for an adult, as an adult to have those conditions. Fatty liver disease wasn't even a disease 10 years ago, but now it's increasing as the most common form of liver disease and is a very severe condition. And those would be kind of the chronic disease conditions. Maybe Emily, you can talk about some of the behavioral uh, learning um, academic issues as well. Okay, more of the short-term stuff that people yes. might be seeing if their kids are taking in too much sugar. Right. Yeah, and also just something that we talk about in the book is it's not just that we've seen increases in sugar, but we've seen shifts in the food supply of what types of sugar are used more often. So there's been huge increases in fructose, um, you know, of course, from high fructose corn syrup, but now also from all of the different uh, fruit juice concentrates and other fruit-based sweeteners and um, just the increases in juice and liquid sugar across the board. And then also in low calorie sweeteners. So now it's, it's estimated that one in four children are exposed to some form of low calorie sweetener on a given day. And we just don't know um, some of the long-term effects. And we know that fructose is already causing quite a bit of damage, both in the short and long-term for kids, but um, we're not quite sure about the effects of some of the low calorie sweeteners in the long-term. Um, and we do know that these can, as you mentioned, be affecting behavior and you know, shorter term outcomes, um, behavior and able inability to concentrate in school, um, even kids' mood. You know, there's been links between um, you know, studies that have looked at consumption of sugar and specifically sweetened beverages and rates of depression. So these are all things that we're concerned about. Right. Yeah, I think um, the link between sugar and some of the um, like hyperactivity disorders 
Um, have you done any research about that? Yeah, we, we've done some research on that, not specifically in terms of clinical outcomes like ADHD. There's mm -hmm. very little research actually on that topic. Uh, our, our conclusion from reviewing that literature was that we don't have enough information to say sugar is necessarily a cause, but it certainly exacerbates mm -hmm. um, the issue. And, and certainly we've done, or at least my colleagues have done research at USC, which I've worked with them on, looking at this question of does sugar cause uh, hyperactivity, which uh, one famous study from several decades ago tried to debunk that myth and, and concluded that there's no evidence that sugar causes hyperactivity, but we're all parents here and we know that that's not true, right? So <laughs> as parents, we, we, we've all experienced the ups and downs, what we call the sugar roller coaster of energy highs and crashes. Uh, we've done research on it. It does, ex it does, it's a phenomenon that it does exist. Some of the older research we break down because it, it wasn't, perfect research. They actually, most of the research that's been done compared the effects of sugar against sugar alternatives like aspartame and sucralose, which themselves, I'm sure we'll get into this as well, which themselves have the same effect. So you're not, you don't have a perfect control mm -hmm. um, because of that. So our studies show that there are energy highs and lows and ask any parent and we encourage parents to be their own scientists and um, look to see what happens. And the problem is different kids will respond differently on different days. So, and that's, that's just part of the contextual effects, the natural variation that occurs in the body, you know, what they had to eat previously, uh, other factors at play. So you will, you're not going crazy if you see you different kids, you've got multiple kids, so I'm sure you've witnessed this yourself, Rebecca, that not all, not all kids are going to um, respond the same way mm -hmm. on the same day, and that's perfectly normal. There's just variation in the system, in the physiology that, that, that works. But overall, there are energy ups and energy crashes, and this is a fundamental concern. So we talk about maintaining blood glucose levels, with diet, uh, and you can do that best by get, getting added sugar out of the diet. Mm -hmm. Definitely, and I'm sure a lot of parents out there have experienced this, but about maybe 20, 25 years ago when I first started cutting these things out of our diets, sugar was definitely the first thing to go. Um, but yeah, taking out sugar, food colorings, um, white flour, and some things like that, and I had, my older children were small at that time, and I wasn't really sure. I didn't have a book like yours to guide me through this process. I was just experimenting, like you said. And so I took all of the stuff and I put it in a cabinet above my refrigerator. You know how you have those little small cabinets up there. Mm -hmm. And I thought, okay, I'm just going to put it away up there. If this doesn't work out, I can always just get this stuff back out, whatever. And, you know, in hindsight, I can see that it would have been better to just throw that away. But at one point I found my, I think he was five or six at the time, a five year, you know, bo little boy, uh, climbed up on the counter up onto the refrigerator and had a spoon and was trying to eat the sugar out of the bag with a spoon because he was obviously going through some 
type of sugar withdrawal because I hadn't let him have sugar for a couple of weeks without knowing it. I was doing your sugar challenge. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so that um, definitely shows you, but I could tell a huge difference in his behavior. So in that kind of frame of mind, I was hoping that the two of you could give parents a little bit of guidance. You know, if they have a child like my son at the time with a serious sweet tooth, what kind of steps would be logical for them to take with the, you know, without this too much disrupting of the family harmony in there? Do you have experience with this doing this yourself with your children, Emily? Yes. Well, I think, you know, there's a, there's a number of different approaches that you can take. Um, if you want to do one of our challenges, one of them is seven days where you go cold turkey and take everything out, which sounds along the lines of maybe what you did with your family. Um, or you could take a more gradual approach, like the 28-day challenge that we suggest, where you just go more slowly and make some subtle changes. And that actually might work better um, in some cases for families mm -hmm. in a more gradual transition. So, you know, if kids are really used to Frosted Flakes in the morning and things like that, it might be a big change to just take that out entirely. But you could start mixing that cereal with a healthier cereal and then slowly starting to, you know, go into non-cereal breakfasts and more savory options and, you know, more subtle changes that um, will be better received. And then I think also it's great to just um, replace some of the staple foods in the house um, you know, that kids might not even realize or families might not even realize that they're contributing sugar. So making a change in the type of peanut butter that you buy or pasta sauce that you buy, kids probably won't notice a huge change in that, but it will actually can make a difference cumulatively in the amount of sugar that they're getting. And it's just steps towards creating a healthier home food environment, mm -hmm. which makes a big, a big difference. And then you know, our goal really is to not overly restrict kids and families because we think that can backfire. So we don't want um, to, to necessarily say, you know, you got to take everything out. But, you know, once the home food environment is really steady and it's solid and there's good foods around, um, then it's not that big of a deal to have a treat sometimes um, or you know, make some of our treats that we have in the book that don't have any added sugars, which kids enjoy, um, at least my kids enjoy quite a bit. And the families that have tested them have liked them as well. Um, so yeah, it's just, I think, kind of reestablishing a new normal in the house. And then, you know, from there, you're better able to um, detect, you know, when something's really overly sweet and then, you know, kids are able to say, wow, that is really sweet. Maybe I don't need to finish all of that. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah, I, mean, I, I think that I think this issue of resetting taste preferences is very important, and both the seven-day plan and the twenty-day plan are are, are are designed to do that to either quickly or gradually refresh taste palates. And in our experience, working with our own families and our own personal families and the families that we've worked with, show that that can happen pretty quickly. Uh, after a couple of days without sugar, if you can do the seven-day plan or, or gradually, that there's just, we're so amped up on sugar. And remember that kids are born with a built-in preference for more sweetness. Mm -hmm. This is a natural phenomenon. That This was supposed to be protective to help them to encourage uh, breastfeeding, which was because breast milk is sweet, and to avoid toxic foods from the forest floors. But you know, this protective mechanism is completely backfired in today's food environment. And 
the, the more sugar the more sugar opportunities that kids get the more amped up that preference becomes and so it's kind of a natural thing and it's been exacerbated by the current food environment that kids are getting more and more amped up over over sugar but just like it can get amped up it can also get amped down but right. you have to work at that by by trying to um, re reduce sugar wherever you can because you can reset back that taste preference and when that happens kids will suddenly have an awakening of, of their taste palates mm -hmm. yeah i think that's a really good point um because you know, with my older children, I was a young mom. And so with the older ones, you know, I really did the same things, you know, traditional standard American diet, you know, with my family. Um, I wasn't too concerned with vegetables. I was young and, you know, I hadn't learned a lot about proper diet. And so my older children definitely have a stronger sweet tooth than my younger children, because um, by the time I had my younger children, during my pregnancy, even before conception, I had been off of sugar. And I feel like that gave them an advantage from birth. I also started my younger children off with their first foods wasn't cereal or fruits. It was vegetables or egg yolks or avocados. And so that I also feel like made a big difference. So my younger children are less inclined to reach for sweet foods than my older children. I mean, over my oldest daughter is going to be 29 in December. Um, and my youngest daughter is 12. So, I mean, I can tell a definite difference between the older set and the younger set, as far as, you know, how much sugar they've been exposed to. All of my children try to avoid sugar now because they've learned, but I definitely think that you can reverse it. And, uh, starting this at con before conception has an impact, I believe, on how strong the child's sweet tooth can be. I mean, I'm sure it's not the only thing, and you've probably seen a lot of that with your research, but it, it definitely is a factor. Yeah, I mean, for, 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 for almost everything we're talking about, you know, there's a very complicated multiple factors at play. So we're not saying sugar is the only factor, mm -hmm. but for sure it's a major factor and for sure it's a modifiable factor that will make an impact. Mm -hmm. So it's a great place to start. Mm -hmm. um, and no matter what dietary preference you have or your family has, there's always room to, to cut back on sugar. And again, like Emily said, we're not, we're not advocating zero sugar. I mean, sugar is such an important part of our culture and celebration. And we're not, intending to, to to deny or downplay any of that and the point is we've, we've just become so overwhelmed with sugar that we've forgotten that sugar is sweet treats or sweet treats for special moments mm -hmm. and so those should you know ought to still remain and we 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 definitely advocate still utilizing that well, I'm glad you brought that up because we're coming into a season of the year where a lot of sugar is available to our kids. And I do want to go back and talk about your challenges a little bit. But since you mentioned that, um, I was wondering if you had any kind of tips or strategies for parents to like, you know, maybe cut down on how much sugar happens between October and December. Yeah. Yeah, that's we're, we're actually we're currently working on a piece for Halloween that's going to be published. We do talk a little bit about it in the book, but we're developing, uh, you know, a, 
extended piece on that with some strategies. So one thing we talk about, I'll let Emily take over in a minute, but we have the switch, which, which um, you probably many viewers are familiar with, but many people aren't familiar with the switch, which who, who comes at night to take away excess candy in exchange for a gift. And the goal of all of these things is again, not to deny the fun, but to, to make it possible to have fun without overdoing it and still enjoying it. So kids with diabetes, for example, have enjoyed Halloween for decades and they, they, they can't um, eat a lot of candy, but they're still able to enjoy Halloween. Um, so we, you know, we're working on multiple strategies. Another one is um, what, Halloween this year is going to be extra challenging, isn't it? Because of COVID and pandemic and, and, and there's certainly a link also, by the way, between high blood sugar, which you, which happens when you eat a lot of, sh a lot of sugar, your blood sugar goes up and high blood sugar has been shown to uh, compromise the, the body's fighting of, of, of the virus and links to more severe outcomes. So, there's also a link between blood glucose control and severity of viral infections. So keeping blood sugar control under check is important for many reasons. Emily, you wanna jump in and talk about some other strategies that we're working on? Sure, so moving you know, past Halloween into Thanksgiving and some of the you know, other um, end of the year holidays, Christmas, Hanukkah, and, and those, I, I think what I think about as a parent, um, my kids are young enough to where structure really matters quite a bit for them. So just having, you know, extra sweets hanging around available for snacks or anytime use really, you know, it creates kind of a problem for, for kids who don't necessarily, they're still learning, you know, the place for those kind of things. And so I try and help my kids realize Yes, you can have those, but, you know, let's make sure we have a good lunch first or a good dinner first. Or, you know, if you go to a party and there's a whole spread of stuff, um, you know, if there's something savory available, I try and have them have, make sure that they have something like that first. Um, because what we talk about in the book is, you know, if kids are having sweets on an empty stomach, they're going to feel the effects quite a bit more. Um, and that, that'll cause a bigger spike in blood sugar than if they were to have, you know, something solid to eat first. And that also helps my kids kind of regulate the portion sizes of the desserts. So if they've already eaten, then they're um, less likely to overdo it on sweets. And also just letting my kids know that um, they don't have to have everything in one, in one occasion, one sitting. And we talk about that in the book, you know, helping have, have kids give them the agency to pick what they most want and then let them know, you know, they can have, you know, if there's brownies, cookies and cake on the table, they can pick one and then they can have something else like that on another occasion. So, you know, letting them, letting them pick, but also helping them to know um, strategies for not overdoing it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I love that. And for like parties and stuff like that, one thing that worked with my kids was that I would usually feed them something healthy that was their favorite, like healthy food or whatever. One of my kids really liked Caesar salads. So we would do a Caesar salad before we would go to a birthday party. And then while I 
past that point where my son was eating the sugar out of the bag, I decided, okay, no more sugar in the house. We'll just stop doing this. You know, I mean, at holidays, I do make some things, but I do try to use honey or maple syrup as, as opposed to white sugar. But um, it's just not something that I kept in my house. So before we would go to a birthday party, we would kind of eat a little bit of our favorite healthy food. So they were a little bit satiated when they arrived. And then the rule was you can have what you want. This is your choice. You know how it makes you feel. And by doing that, and says, we're not going to eat sugar because the more you go against it, the more it seems like, Ooh, you know, the forbidden, you know, thing. Um, so they would self-regulate and they would definitely go in. They would maybe get a cupcake, scrape the frosting off because to them it was too sweet or they would eat a couple of bites and then just leave it on the plate and go play. So there does come a point when you're doing these things, these techniques like you have outlined in your book where children do begin to self-regulate and the less you make a big deal out of it. I feel like if it's not there, then they look for something healthier to eat. So. Yeah, I'm glad yeah. you brought that up. That's a really important point. And the aspect of, we have a whole chapter in a book called Sweet Talk, which is about how to talk to kids about this issue. This issue. And the goal is to find out what motivates them in, internally, not like you say, just show up and say, okay, can't eat sugar anymore, sorry. It's basically to... Um, help them figure out what it is internally that's going to feel good mm -hmm. or, or benefit them when that could be, you know, running faster on, on, on the track or on the football field or doing better in school or having better skin or just not feeling terrible after overdoing it. Let them find their own internal motivation and let them open the bidding on what's, what will be too much. So, for example, on the Halloween night, when you're trying to decide how much candy to keep versus leave out for the switch, which ask them first, well, how much do you think would be good to keep? You might be surprised. You might open the bidding low and you'll be done, or they might open the bidding high, in which case you'll have a bit of work to do. But oftentimes they will, they will realize themselves what's, what would feel good. And having them decide and having them come up with the motivation is so important. Internal motivation is key. 100%. And also something that that's fun is involving kids in picking out recipes for some of these holidays and um, so that they can be excited about, you know, if you're going to make a treat, what is it going to be? And then involving them in, in preparing it. And a lot of the recipes that we have in Sugar Proof work well for holidays as well. We have a um, recipe for cookies, Sicilian almond cookies that are great for the holidays. And we're going to be coming up with some, posting some variations on um, our chocolate sesame squares for Halloween, making them extra spooky. <laughs> and so um, I'm also thinking, I'm also thinking chocolate pear cake, Emily. Oh, chocolate pear cake is so good. I haven't made that yet this season, <clears throat> but I have a couple ripe pears at home that are, that are calling my name for that. Yeah, it's coming up. It's happening. Well, I can't wait to have the recipe for that. That sounds delicious. That that's in the that's chocolate pear cakes in the book. Okay. I haven't got to that one yet. Ooh, yeah. I'm going to try that for sure. Um, and that's one thing that we do a lot is keep fruit around. And if they want something sweet, they can reach for fruit. And I loved that you used fruit in your recipes for a sweetener 
because you don't have to use things like honey and maple syrup or whatever, because fruit is naturally sweet and it does count towards your sugar intake, you know, when you're looking at the big picture, right? Well, it's a fine line here. So honey and maple syrup, coconut sugar, less refined sugars. I mean, they have their, certainly have their place in baking and so on, but they're still added sugars. But if you use the whole fruit, it doesn't count as an added sugar. Um, and unless you've extracted the sugar from the fruit, such as a fruit-based sweetener or mm-hmm. fruit puree or something, but you're getting the, you're get because you're getting the benefit of all the fruit, including all the fiber and the phytochemicals as well. So, mm-hmm. if you throw a few dates into a, a cookie recipe as a sweetener, or into a, or, or pear into a cake, or mango into mango cornbread, that's coming to mind too. Instead of honey or sweetener, you're you're getting all the mango. You're getting all the other nutrients in the mango, plus the natural sweetness and the taste. So, get multiple benefits from that. So that's what we've been uh, working on and proposing. And it's not easy to do. That's why you know Emily's been working hard on these recipe developments. But you get multiple benefits when you do that. Nice. Well, that's that's a cookbook in the making right there, because I can tell you, I have a Pinterest board that's healthy desserts and it's, it's pretty popular because people are looking for healthier desserts. So I, I feel like that would be maybe something down the line for you. <laughs> if you're good at developing recipes, which it seems like you are, I'm sure the demand would be there for like a fruit based kind of, you know, um, dessert cookbook. Mm-hmm. We have a, we have a good we have a number of those in the book, but I think there's definitely room to expand, like you said, um, yeah. so many options. And it you know it does take a little more effort to develop those, which is why we wanted we wanted to put that effort in because we feel like it's so easy to find recipes online that claim to be healthy um, just because they've swapped out you know plain white sugar for a less refined form of sugar. Mm-hmm. But ultimately, those recipes still have a considerable amount of added sugar in them. So we challenged ourselves to try and come up with the recipes that didn't have any or, added sugar. Or have, or have alternative sweeteners like monk, monk fruit or stevia or other sugar substitutes, which in, you know, can, be, can, can introduce their own set of problems. Right. That's a great point. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think um, sticking with fruit for kids is a really great start. So as far as the challenge goes, have you had a lot of feedback from people about, you know, what kind of things they saw with their kids as they went through your challenges? Yes, we've had a number of families do both of the challenges, and we've got some great feedback. Um, and, you know, the families that go through the seven day challenge oftentimes report, you know, what we were expecting, which is the first few days can be rough. <laughs> so, you know, just preparing yourself for, you know, kids feeling maybe more cranky or going through some symptoms of sugar withdrawal. But then very quickly, the families have been able to establish a new normal and find, you know, alternatives for some of the staple foods that they used to buy, um, even simple things like bread. You know, they didn't realize that each slice of their whole wheat bread had nearly a teaspoon of sugar in it. And so just making simple, simple substitutions, um, you know, help them find things that they were able to easily continue with after the seven days um, that the family was happy to do. Um, and some of the feedback has been great. You know, one of the families told us um, 
know, I realize that my kids get enough sugar outside of the house, so I don't need to be providing much more of it inside of the house. So um, I've gotten some great feedback like that. And then the families that have done the more gradual challenge, the 28-day challenge, have also seen great results. And um, what, what they appreciated about that was the ability to kind of brainstorm as a family and come up with a few collective goals that they could be working on um, slowly. And then some of the some of the families also went with more of a stealth approach to the 28-day challenge, where the the person who was most um, responsible for shopping or cooking in the family just made some subtle changes on their own. And that's something that you can do, you know, yourself, even if your family might not be totally on board at first. You know, just slowly starting buying different products can make a big um, big shift in the family eating patterns. When you say stealth, you mean so they basically just started doing it without announcing it. Right, yeah, exactly. Let, yeah. yeah, let's say you have a reluctant partner or a reluctant teenager who's, you know, not willing to, to jump on board. Well, you know, whoever is buying the groceries and whoever is doing the cooking, you know, can make subtle changes without, without making it, like you said, without announcing it, can go under the radar and stop buying juice or dilute the juice a little bit or not buy frosted flakes anymore or whatever is the, is the main um, culprit in the house. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that can sometimes be a, a, a way to get through this with little friction <laughs> because especially if you have children who are used to maybe drinking sodas or having ice cream every night or something like that, that could probably become a really serious point of contention between parents and children. And you don't want that obviously um, still, I feel, I feel like in the end parents have to lead a little bit. So I think it's just about finding the balance, right? <clears throat> Definitely. Totally. Totally. Yeah. It's all about the balance. Yeah. So I, I love the challenge. So do you have any suggestions like, so we're, we're coming up on this season. Um, so maybe people want to implement maybe your 28 day challenge, but they're like, Oh, well, I've got, you know, this holiday and this birthday and this Thanksgiving and all these things coming up. I know you talked about that in your book. Can you briefly give us a little advice there? That's the beauty of the 28 day challenge is that there's flexibility there. So we're not asking families to take sugar out entirely over those 28 days. It's more just about generally making a gradual reduction in, in sugar. So if there's a birthday party, you don't have to worry about it. Your kids can still participate, still have the cake, whatever it is, because we don't expect that family life is going to come to a halt for 28 days for dietary changes. Um, and that's why we kept the seven-day challenge really short, because in that one, we're proposing that you do go more cold turkey, and that is a lot more achievable within seven days. I wanted to bring that up because I know a lot of times people like, oh, well, I'll start cutting out sugar on Monday, or I'll start cutting out sugar mm -hmm. at the new year. But it's not really something that you have to wait for. You can work on it gradually, like you said. So I wanted you to um, just mention that about your 28 day challenge that it's not like, okay, not one granule of sugar for 28 days. No, we definitely, yeah. I mean, yeah. <laughs> I mean, none, none of it is, none of it is like strict adherence required. There, there's so much versatility and flexibility. Uh, we know, we know families are busy with multiple things going on and, 
a birthday party could ruin the whole thing, but that's that's okay. We, you can work around that, um, and we don't we don't have strict guidance on any of these things. We we wanted to keep it um, loose to accommodate mm-hmm. the you know the flexibilities of families. Excellent. I'm I'm really glad that you pointed that out. Um, especially because it's going to be airing at that time of year when people just feel inclined to, you know, have things with sugar around. And, and we don't, like you said, we don't want to take away the fun of that, but just to kind of balance it out. So that's really Cer- nice. Yeah, I mean, certainly a, a great time to do the seven-day challenges after the holidays are done. So, you know, in, in the new year um, is, a, is a great time to do it. And we're hoping to run um, a promotion around that time with with a, with an organized seven day plan. Uh, we have a lot of details in the book. We have we've also have another um, set of plans that we're that we're, that we're working on. There's much more specific. If you need the specific guidelines with shopping lists and and, all, and specific meal plans, so the seven day plan in the book is very versatile. You can mix and match um, as as you as as works for your family. But in the new year is a great time to do it. It's not the only time to do it, but it's a great opportunity. Mm-hmm. I like to do a little um, thing like that in between Thanksgiving and Christmas, mm-hmm. um, just kind of reset a little bit. So, yeah, that's some families who used our challenge in just that way. They did mm-hmm. a little reset in between, and that was helpful because otherwise, it just stretches on for months and months. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it does gradually become a new way of life. And it, it, it's just not a thing. I mean, after you practice this method for a while, and you do sugar proof your kids, after a while, it's not even something that you really think about. That's just a way of life. You just don't buy soda. You, I mean, it's just how you live. It's not, it's an afterthought, if anything. So I really appreciate you writing this book. Can you tell us where, if people want to find out more about you, do you have social media? Where can people find you? Yeah. So we're on Instagram and Facebook. um, And the handle is at sugarproof kids. And you can find us on the website. We have a website called sugarproofkids.com. And we have a blog on there. You can sign up for a newsletter that we're sending out every other week with uh, recipes and other ideas. Yeah, but follow us on Instagram. Take a look at the website. And if you're interested, the book is available anywhere that you're obtaining books from these days, whether that's a real bookstore or a virtual bookstore. You, you can, and you can also buy it in any format, the actual book, the Kindle, or the audio book there. All formats are available. Nice. Awesome. Well, anything else that you think we might add before we bring this to an end? You, you sounds like you wrote the book 25 years ago. <laughs> uh, you, you've, been, you've been doing this. You have so much experience. And uh, well, I did it the have, hard way. I learned yeah. from a lot of mistakes. So if I'd had your book back then, I definitely feel like it would have been a lot easier on my kids but they all survived it and they're healthier for it. So, well, thank you so much for being on my podcast today. I'm so excited. I can't wait to share this with my community. I know they're going to love it. So thank you so much. Well, thank you. Thanks for having us on. It was really lovely to meet you and talk with you. Thank you so much. It was nice to meet you too. Thank you, Emily. 
Thank you. Thanks for listening. Please rate and review so other people can learn about this podcast. Find out more about sleep, hygiene, eating healthy, tasty recipes, zero-waste lifestyle, and lots more on thatorganicmom.com. Help us spread the word. Be blessed and stay healthy.